Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Moore and Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Doing really well. Doing really well. Got a great sleep last night. How are you today? I'm doing well, too. And Lance, this episode that we're going to bring our fine audience today was recorded in the state of New Hampshire at the University of New Hampshire we were asked to sort of give a guest lecture or at least sit in on a forensic anthropology class and discuss the Maura Murray case. Yeah, it was a little bit intimidating at first. So we got the invitation from our friend Amy, who um, invited us to talk to her students. And at first I was thinking it was going to be like you see in the movies where those 
you know, multi-tiered rooms, and then there's the desk down at the bottom, and you basically need, like, binoculars to see the uh, professor. So that's what was going on in my head when I was driving to Durham, New Hampshire. Beautiful town, by the way. Driving to Durham, New Hampshire, found the um, found the parking lot, went in, and realized that this is a this is a regular classroom. These are regular kids, and and Amy is a uh, super down to earth person. Made it really easy. Really smart kids. Really smart professor. And they were really interested in not only Maura's case, but our journey and also what to do moving forward. They had a list of questions that were incredible that we could have gone on for hours with. Yeah, and each student is researching their own case, their own cold case, and trying to find some information on it and things like that. So I think it's a really interesting uh, lesson, I guess, in a, in a course. It's a forensic anthropology course taught by Amy Michael. And Lance, old friend, Robert Eckstein was there as well. Bobby from uh, from episode I think it was eleven of this very podcast uh, where we spoke with Bobby Eckstein of UNH who is a professor of forensic psychology and that was that was so long ago and this was the first time we ever met him I know he popped in well first we were told by Amy that he was there and he was interested in meeting us so to add to the anxiety we were about to meet Bobby Eckstein as well so that was uh that was a little bit of a of a little nerve-wracking because uh, he was really intimidating when we interviewed him on the show, not because he's an intimidating person by nature, just because he's very, very smart. And I just don't react well to in- incredibly smart people. Um, I think I try to make stuff up. but uh, That's why you're so weird around me. Yeah, exactly. But joking aside, uh, he did pop in, and he couldn't be more nice. I mean, he's, he's an incredibly gracious person. Uh, he actually kind of apologized for his interview with us on the early episode of Missing More Murray. Uh, he said that he was operating off of very preliminary facts. He did a lot of research about Moore's case, but what's happened since then has made him rethink some of the things he said. Not exactly, you know, he would never like take things back, but he's gone on the journey with us. And he, and he said, you know, some of the things that I said in the past, like I've, I've, re, uh, I've rethought. Which I think is amazing and super humbling that someone like him would continue to follow this case, our journey, the things that come up on this show, and then apply it to what he said previously. I think that's incredibly humbling, and I don't really know how to take it other than you know a huge thank you to him for taking us that seriously. Yeah, it was it was very cool to to meet him finally and to hang out with him and Amy and all the students, Lance. And so this episode today is audio from that classroom, that guest lecture, I guess you'd call it. I think one of the bigger takeaways, like we said earlier, is to uh, listen to the questions that the students had. They were put up on the overhead projector, so the students didn't exactly an- uh, ask them in real time. They a- Amy had taken the questions and put them up there, and we answered them as part of our uh, lecture or dialogue with them. Uh, afterward, they came up, and, and we had some conversations with them. Uh, some of them are connected to Moore's case just by uh, location, by proxy, and that was that was really interesting as well. But the, the questions that they had during the lecture were very applicable to the things that we get on an everyday basis. And then there were some surprises in there as well. Yeah. And uh, so some of the audio is Amy and Bobby, uh, the professors um, speaking uh, that you, you hear very little from the the students, um, but 
you will hear a little bit of Amy and a little bit of Bobby, and it's not great audio, their angle, because basically our recorder was across the room from them. And so we have mics, um, so we, you and I, Lance, sound sound good, um, but uh, you have to, I don't know if it's a struggle, You just it's a, it's a change in audio when they talk, so uh, just bear with it, but you can understand them, and you can understand, you can follow the conversation. And one more thing, we do have a growing network, Tim, Crawl Space Media. You can check out all of our shows, all of those who have joined the family at crawlspace-media.com. They're all fascinating shows. They run the gamut, and you will not be disappointed with any one of them. That is a Crawl Space guarantee. So check that out at crawlspace-media.com. The first clip, we discuss missing white woman syndrome. Yeah, that question had came up very early on when we started working on Moore's case back, you know, a couple of years ago, where people would say that this is a missing white woman syndrome because of Moore's appearance. She was presented as the all-American girl. So to get that one with these kids uh, on that day and, and realize that that was still a thing that was out there uh, just shows, like, the, the scale that this case has. Even though we feel like we've answered that numerous times, people just getting into this case are, are just rediscovering it. We had discussed on Tuesday in class um, a couple of things, victim discounting, something called the missing white woman syndrome. And I think it, this is a perfect example of missing white woman syndrome, right? There's so much press about Morris case. And you even spoke to Lance in the first class about, you know, she's young, she's pretty, like this is kind of like a sexy story to tell. Um, so yeah, if you if you want to weigh in on you know why this case in particular was it because of like the geographic area she was missing in kind of this rural remote space there we sort of like city dwellers have kind of like a you know a, a, that's a little spooky for for us anyway but then um, um, sex race class status anything you want to weigh in why did what made this case so so popular why did so many people around um, the internet world kind of get drawn into it. Yeah, I think, in my opinion, it's definitely a big combination of factors. All this is true, missing white woman syndrome. And uh, there is a thing out there, if you look into missing persons cases, the most popular ones are young women, typically white, um, typically of, of a certain class or status, I, I guess. Um, but that was all kind of happening with Maura Murray's case before we ever got involved. Um, now, we, I suppose, so we didn't really make the choice to move that forward, but that definitely happened because we were a part of it. And it happened because you see the picture of her here, and coming in here today, I, I think I saw like half a dozen or a dozen more Murrays as I came in here today because it's the All-American Girl, and they set this up as the All-American Girl just to break it down, just to say that this, it's the All-American Girl, or so you thought. But she was an alcoholic, and she was promiscuous, and she was this and this. Alternatively, we have Brianna Maitland, who is just an all, just as an all-American girl as Maura Murray, but she actually had a drug problem. And she was a few years younger, too. She was 17. Yeah, and she actually was from a bad neighborhood and had a group of people that were bad influences. But that's already there. You know, you don't have to dig, and it doesn't have to spoil the image of the all-American girl. She's already been damaged. So that's why her case doesn't get as much coverage as Maura Murray's case, because people love learning the secrets. They love the dirty laundry. And you could take the all-American girl from the all-American family, you know, the Irish family from South Shore, Massachusetts, and you have to make them into something they're not. I also think the circumstances of Maura's disappearance play a role, too, because... 
she seemingly vanished out of nowhere, like into thin air. And and there are cases like this, um, you know, just just Google missing persons, and you'll find ones like this. Um, Brianna Maitland is, I would say, a little bit different because it seemed like she was kind of pulled from the car. So that seems like an aggressive move the way her car was left. But Mora, by all accounts, got into a single car accident and was there by herself and vanished. Um, there are other cases like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember Molly Tibbetts from Iowa from, I think it was earlier this year. Oh, and and that was very much like this case on the surface when it was like, oh, this woman from from Iowa, the middle of Iowa or the middle of nowhere, basically, or actually, I guess she was in a college town, but she had a boyfriend and she went running at 10. Well, that sounds weird. Who runs at 10 at night? Well, what about her boyfriend? Where was he? You know, he wasn't following her. And then and she goes missing and completely disappears off the face of the earth for a face of the earth. But then you find out that it was completely random, just completely random. This guy driving down the street or, or whatever it was. So, yeah, I think that the the into thin air thing definitely is terrifying at people's cores, I think. Yeah, and if there was like a recipe that you could come up with, like a stew that you could make for a missing person, Moore's would be it. You you have the you have the pretty face and you have the relatable family and then you have the into thin air and the more you start peeling back the layers, uh it doesn't stop. And and that is a that is a sort of recipe for what draws people intrinsically to to be fascinated with this case and want to get to the get to the core of it. Yeah, uh, it's a thought experiment. It's a uh, yeah, it's too. a major thought experiment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's endless theories when someone vanishes into thin air but like that. Don't you disagree with mine? Something that struck me this is a little off topic, but something that struck me um, about this case having taught, and you'll hear from me about other cases that are that are quite different is that just the amount of photographs that are available of her online that says to, i mean there's family investment there's like you know she had siblings that carried all this stuff i mean i've worked cold cases before we, we have to beg extended family members like do you think you can go through your basement and like maybe come up with but we have no antemortem photos right and so then you have somebody like like more who all i can do is just google and i come up with 20 straight away um and so it's like all of these things come everything you just talked about but then just the, the availability of like her family is clearly invested in in what happened to her and that's just not the case for and it might not be the case for some of the cool cases you guys are working on too right i bet that some of you could not generate 20 photos of your victim or your missing person she actually had so many pictures and there was so much out there that didn't have anything to back it up like she she is gone but she has this entire like presence right now uh in the ether right there was a moment where i made an offhanded joke about maybe she didn't even exist in the first place. Maybe, maybe this is just a digital image that is some weird thought experiment that someone's doing as a prank. It wasn't a real thought. Like it was just a joke thought in my head, but it, it, it is so, it is so like aggressive with how much is out there and how much you, you don't have what you're left with is nothing, but you have this presence that doesn't, it's like a ghost. Yeah. Well, and, and as has been written about before, you know, being like the first case of the social media age, she's like right at that marker where people start to actually have this many digital yeah. photographs of them. You know, before t 2004, you know, you're like, maybe you would have a digital camera, but it was like a weird little thing that, you know, you're taking like a crazy selfie. But for the most part, I mean, and you're not scanning your hard copy photos. And so, so like post, I mean, this is, this is what we would expect from more missing persons cases recently mm -hmm. to have this much photographic evidence. I think the other thing too, and so many other people have said this, um, 
that I really can't think of too many. I can maybe think of one or two like comp cases where the person, uh, where this happened, and it happened in such an interesting way, but it happened so far from their home in a way where um, there, there's this entire mystery of what she was doing there in the first place. Yeah. So I, I think um, as everything you all said is accurate, um, I think if, she, if this occurred five miles from the UMass campus, I think it would be half uh, as interesting to the average person who yeah. follows these types of cases. Um, yeah, it's, 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 and I think the, um, the, the way the, the case has shifted over the last couple of years, like what you were saying, the theory, the different theories, and now I think it seems like there's a little bit more of a consensus that this that foul play might have been involved. Um, it's, we're still, I mean, there haven't really been advancements in the theory of what she was doing there. Yeah. That's accurate. What brought her to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. and I think that that element to it definitely adds just purely from a, a human interest vantage point. It adds such a big piece to this case. Yeah, I think we have to detach ourselves from where we're at today, where everybody knows where everybody is all the time. And even though it's 2004, it's still that's 15 years ago. So much has happened in 15 years with um, just everything that can locate us, you know, from GPS on our phone to just like checking in uh, on Facebook or whatever yeah. uh, with with her. Like it makes sense. She needed to get away. She wanted to take a trip and she got in her car and had a couple of options. She had a couple of possibilities. And she wasn't like checking in. She was. She just needed to get away. Yeah, but <clears throat> I think to to your point, Bobby, it doesn't really help the uh, the ho- sort of horror movie trope that um, that is the beginning of this story. Is she goes somewhere else out of her comfort zone, and something bad happens. And there's like ninety percent of the horror movies out there start like that. And in this next clip, we're talking about speculations and things about the case and how to sort of train yourself to not get carried away. Which I think is really important, obviously, in the early stages, because these students have picked a cold case to work on. They have to understand, as a as a civilian, as a non-law enforcement um, official, how to approach that without getting, I guess, emotionally attached to it. First one is, how does one effectively look into this case without either focusing too much on the odd and conspiratorial details or completely ignoring them altogether? Which I think is a good, really good question for this one in particular. It is really tough because there, there are a lot of um, minute details in this case that you can just create your own theory on. And people have. We've seen it over and over. Yeah, and it's really just sort of your own technique. Um, if you focus too much on an odd or conspiratorial conspiratorial detail you will get caught up in in some you know rabbit holes uh allow yourself to go down them a little bit and then allow yourself to dismiss them and and but maybe not entirely dismiss them keep them on your radar but just like don't don't train yourself to be too like closed off on certain um theories that or or details that don't strike your particular interest. You know, if it's if it if it doesn't fit your theory, that's the that's the name of the game. Yeah, try not to create a theory um, if you can. That is really hard, and I think some people might disagree with that um, because some people I think that is their tactic to kind of come up with a theory and then chase that. Um, but in this case, I think it's best to really try to take that thirty thousand foot approach if you can. Like. Look at the circumstances of her surround or her disappearance. She was under an immense amount of 
stress. She drove three hours to a rural area. She didn't know anyone. Her phone was out of service. She got into an accident. She hit her head on the windshield. Um, I think me and Lance may may have a debate on that, but she might not have been thinking clearly when she got out of her car and maybe accepted a ride from someone or accepted help from someone she shouldn't have or under different circumstances wouldn't have. I think that kind of goes into the second point here, how are uh, some inconsequential inconsequential details of red herring seen as uh, major issues and how can it be avoided again just just assess like the entire scenario and a, an example of this is the rag in the tailpipe we know that there was a rag in the tailpipe and it's uh it is a uh, it is a uh, productive exercise to consider why she would put the rag in the tailpipe was it a calling card from her you know to tell people that she was okay but she had left or was she actually doing what her dad told her a lot of the well, details you, in this case. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. You jumped to she put the rag in her tailpipe. A lot of people get hung up on someone else put it there and followed her until her car crashed. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what we know to be a fact is that Fred told her to do that, to put the rag in her tailpipe when she was driving that car that was apparently smoking a little bit, had blown a gasket. And um, she was driving from uh, school to clinicals. And so he did it to hide or he told her to do that to hide the exhaust so she wouldn't get pulled over. Um, now, I would say it's too, co too coincidental to say that someone else just put that in that in her tailpipe after, you know, she had gotten that advice. So you have that and you can explore all sorts of, uh, you know, reasons why this rag was in the tailpipe. We have another theory out there that. There was no uh, footprints in the snow because she climbed a tree and went branch to branch uh, to avoid putting footprints in the snow. This is an actual thing that was, uh, was suggested to us. That's one of those details that you should probably avoid because that doesn't sound like a reality-based uh, <laughs> uh, thing that would happen. Um, given her her situation, so yes, you you sort of have to use your own judgment given your given what's presented to you. However, that's an interesting point though, because the theory actually does work. If you want to run with that, you really can. You could say she climbed a tree and you know climbed it all the way out of the area and got a ride somewhere else or something like. It actually kind of makes sense. That's why it's a hard one. That's why and, and it's memorable too. It, but it's definitely not true. But it would have gotten her out of the area if she was able to do that. All that being said, it would not surprise me if that actually happened. <laughs> it would definitely surprise me. I, I think what I have learned in doing forensic work is that, like, yes, fantastical, mysterious things do happen, but, like, parsimony is your friend, and, like, yeah. Occam's razor is, like, your thing to live by, which is, like, the simplest answer is usually the closest to reality. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely and not swinging tree to tree. I used to uh, be very opposed to the Occam's razor, because I think we just had so many people emailing us so quickly right away, like, oh, it's Occam's Razor, it's Occam's Razor. And I don't know if like half the people knew what Occam's Razor really was. Um, but I but now I'm but now I'm on board with it. Uh, everything that is a perceived mystery in this case, most of it has an answer. The rag in the tailpipe her dad told her to. Well, okay, we just have to believe her dad. You know, there's 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 many things that uh, that that line up to make that work. Faith Westman, who called uh, the police, stated that there was activity at the trunk of the car. Well, that makes sense, that she would go to the trunk of her car and get the rag and put it in the tail. Like, you can make that connection. I mean, you don't have to be 100% married to that, but you can say, oh, well, that sort of is like one plus one is two. Her dad told her to do that. She was hung up on, maybe hung up on a snowbank or her car was disabled. Maybe she thought putting the rag in the tailpipe would give the car some, like she'd be able to start it or get some oomph to get out of there. And she was seen at the trunk 
okay, that seems reasonable to believe that a rag would be kept in the trunk. So just look at, there's a lot of things in this case if it does get solved, if it's not by someone who confesses, it will be solved by something that was actually there that it, that just hasn't been untangled yet. Yeah, and we've we've actually heard um, like really professional people um, talk about the rag and, and say that they think a, uh, you know, maybe a killer put it in there, but w without knowing the detail that Fred told Mora to do it. And this next clip, we talk about Mora's car a little bit. We talk about Butch Atwood, the bus driver, and we talk about a little bit about law enforcement protocol when they found a, a car on the side of the road. And what's really interesting about our answers, Tim, is I think we're used to going back and forth and... At times, it feels like in my head that we were going on and on about something and maybe getting distracted and going down different different uh, different different avenues with it. But that's also important to note that when you're looking at one detail with this case, especially early on, you do start to go down different avenues because it's not just simply the rag in the tailpipe. The rag in the tailpipe leads to, uh, you know, what police would do with a car on the side of the road in the first place. So this is how uh, I guess you have to compartmentalize these details of the case. This is a, some, a conversation that we have with a lot of people and we have it internally and we have it with law enforcement. There's no protocol for just a car being abandoned on the side of the road. Yeah, well, it, it probably shouldn't have been where it was at I, Troop F. Oh, it definitely, my the, opinion, it definitely the, should not have been on the grass at that point yeah. after 10 years. And I but, have the same reaction as you guys. But, but. We, you know, to that point, like, uh, I don't know what forensic evidence is really good about that car you know like you can't you can't do dna swabs or even mvac tests inside the car and get anything useful whatsoever the only thing i think you could do is potentially like a accident recreation um based on the damage of her car but even then the damage has actually uh been added to since the accident due to being moved around a bit so I, I actually think the car has no value pretty much right now. Yeah, it pretty much has no value. I don't even know if it had value in the beginning because the accident, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the accident reconstruction and did the snowbank actually make the, you know, make these dents. Does that mean that someone like ran her off the road? But well, we don't even have an, we don't have an account of that. We don't, again, if you look at everything that's just there, uh, all the statements, no one says, I heard, you know, I heard a car hit another car. No, they said they hit a thud. And they heard um, like an, an engine revving, yep. and which is which is all in line with uh, a single car accident. There was there was no metal on metal. There was no like I heard a car speed away. Uh, Butch came up pretty shortly thereafter. Um, Mora had talked to him. If if and this goes to like if Butch was actually a suspect, if he was if he was responsible for it, do you think that he might say, "Yeah, I saw a car speed away," but. That didn't happen. He 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 had the exact account as far as his memory could recollect that with Mora that in that interaction with Mora, she never said that someone ran her off the road. According to him, I mean, she if someone ran you off the road, wouldn't you run at it like you if you're so stunned like and then you're still there like if so they unless ran her off the road butch, unless it was oh my god I just talked myself into it being Butch. No, no, it, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think Butch would have um, thrown some misdirection potential, and maybe I, I suppose you could say maybe he maybe did. his misdirection was no direction. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one thing we learned early on is that typically most not in all cases, but typically the people who call the police are not guilty of you know what they're calling the police about. It has happened, but it's not typical. And then he was also living with his common law wife and. Um, 
her mom or his mom, I think, at the time of Moore's disappearance. So then if you really do think Butch did it, you know, he, he would be lying about it. Um, he would have had to have taken Mora in the blink of an eye without anyone seeing her, at least if they did see they're too afraid of him to come forward. He takes her and does something with her without his mom and his common-law wife finding out um, in, like, 10 minutes because then he went out searching with the police. Well, then he was back in his bus when <laughs> yeah. uh, when Cecil Smith came up to talk to him about the accident. So yeah. is it possible? I suppose, but I Maybe think it's he had like a random psychotic break. Unlikely. It's so, so unlikely yeah. that I think you can dismiss it. And here's a great question by a student about false information and how that could be damaging to the, to the case. Do you think all the information about Murray's case is making it more likely for people to come forward with false memories, opinions that complicate the investigation? Oh, what a tough question. Yeah. Who had that one? Whose question was that? <laughs> that was a tough question. <laughs> Good one. Um, yeah, I I think that that is probably true. I mean, ev- look, every lead that comes out now that doesn't solve the case can potentially be um, put in the category of complicating the investigation. But how are you going to know what clue doesn't, you know, actually does solve it? So, yeah, it, all the tips and sightings, quote unquote, and things like that that happen now that go to the cold case unit, yeah, that that takes up their time to um, investigate. Maybe not complicate the relationship or the uh, investigation because I think the police have a pretty good idea what they think happened. So with what we do, we we continue to talk about her case, and then other people talk about the case, and new information comes up, and new searches happen, and. I agree that some of the memories and the opinions, uh, like the memories might be something that they they start to convince themselves that it happened. I think that that uh, does complicate the investigation, but it's probably pretty easy for the investigators to dismiss that, but they have to listen to it in the first place. Um, I don't think that that ultimately comes from a bad place in that person, though. I think most people want to help. I think most people see what's happening, they hear Fred, and then they say, I need to help somehow. I need to get involved and I need to help. Uh, It's just from that point on, like, okay, so you've given your opinion on it. You've given, you know, um, your memory, your account of something. Then you just have to separate yourself after that. And I think the real complication comes when people can't separate themselves. Well, also, um, you know, we've heard sightings or or potentially false memory or opinions like uh, a woman in in Florida um, was pumping gas and she looked like Mora. And, you know, we got that email and the cold case unit got that email. Well, there's nothing anyone can do about that. You, you know, like she was in Florida. No one has a license plate. Okay, maybe it was more. It probably wasn't. Probably just looked like her. But then there's other ones like what happened maybe a few months ago where there was sort of a more lookalike, and I'll be the first to admit that, actually, um, at Storyland uh, in New Hampshire. And someone took some pictures and posted that on Facebook. And uh, it does kind of look like an older Mora, but... Um, but that one, I would say, at least is a little more actionable because you can send those pictures to the police. You can say what day they were taken on, and they can potentially find out who that was and prove that it wasn't Mora or was Mora. If you want to find Mora and you can't like let go of these like attachments you have, you're going to be looking for Mora from 2004, and you're going to see her everywhere. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. 
And here we're talking about Rick's house and the A-frame. They they flashed up a couple of photographs on the projector, and uh, they, they were very well aware of the work we had done up on those two properties last year and wanted to hear more about it. The bottom house there was um, owned by a guy named Rick, who uh, was not living in the house at the time. It was it was something he was building at the time Mora went missing, and I think it was sort of like an excavated hole, if I'm not mistaken, maybe. There's some weird conjecture with that. Some yeah, say is. that there was a, a bit of concrete already there for the foundation, and some say that um, there was like it was being excavated. Right. So, yeah, a little bit of conjecture there based on neighbor reports, but... Um, so he was living in a trailer on the property, like eerily, I would say, like 100 feet from where the search dogs lost Mora's trace. Doesn't mean he did anything, but he lived right there. So he's one of the one of the main persons that we had focused on in this investigation. And there have been countless rumors about him. And we know that the police took him seriously um, to, to a great extent, actually, in their investigation. And so we decided to bring GPR, ground penetrating radar, our friends Ed and Graham, uh, to uh, to New Hampshire. So they they did the GPR over the lawn because I think there was some rumor that uh, this guy buried her on his property right there. And we also brought um, cadaver dogs in who would have been able to smell that if that were true. So um, that came up false, you know, or in you know, not it's not Mora, not not anyone there. Um, same thing with the ground penetrating radar, nothing there except for a bunch of like boulders, sort of exactly where we were told, uh, there could have been, um, a body or something. Yeah. So he ran that ground penetrating radar. There was, um, like the x-ray of the ground. There was some anomalies there and we went up there a few months later or a few weeks later and to do the digging because the family who lives there now allowed us to do that and found the boulders. That was a little random. Um, a little, little, a little odd, but nothing that was uh, suspicious, highly suspicious, suspicious. Um, and Graham actually said you couldn't make this ground look more normal. So, so yeah, it was their uh, professional opinion, and they had, you know, had a lot of schooling in um, how to tell if if ground had been disturbed or not. And so it hadn't been disturbed in 15 years. We'll say though that the the uh, cadaver dogs did not hit on anything on the property. But our uh, our buddy Deb, who uh, handles the cadaver dogs, uh, said that there was a reaction on the side of the house. She said that it could have been um, like trace smells of something, might be the septic or something. But she said if we were to ever go back there and do some digging, we should probably focus on the the side of the house that's uh, closest to the forest, closest to the woods. Yeah, that area. you can't see here. And I'm not saying that there's something there, but it's probably all part not. of like this like citizen detecting. Like we did this. With the blessing of the police, they said, do what you got to do. The family said, go for it. Uh, the family lived there. Um, they even allowed us to do a handheld GPR on their uh, kitchen floor because they thought they heard something hollow. They dropped something, thought that it sounded hollow. And we basically said, I mean, their kitchen floor was one giant tile, too. So it wasn't like you just pull up a tile and do a quick core. Um, and there's no basement, too. So and there's no basement. Yeah, it should just be like cement under that floor. Yeah. But that was normal. Thankfully, we didn't have to pull up their. We didn't have to make the decision to pull up um, their kitchen floor. But we we told them that too. We said, you know what? If we find something, you realize what's going to happen. Like <laughs> we're going to have to make a decision whether we saw a, a chunk of your floor out of here. Um, and I don't know if they actually answered. I think they were just kind of <laughs> waiting to see what yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, but we uh, there was rumors that something was uh, 
something was by the base of the uh, front porch there. Uh, there was a, a slab of concrete that was probably three feet by two and a half feet that was acting as the platform, the bottom step of the um, the, the stair to go up to the porch. Yeah, and and it was based on a rumor. Um, so, sort of uh, someone said that Rick was supposed to be out of town a certain weekend and they had come by or something and saw him pouring cement there. So it's like, oh, my God. Well, he wasn't out of town. So that that's how easily something can get from absolutely nothing to... Uh, 15 years later, you're digging up crowbarring uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> concrete up. It's heavy, by the way. But it was worth it, you know. And yeah. and yeah, that was reinforced with um, actually like steel that that slab. So I think yeah. Rick did that himself. Yeah. Um, but to, all to the point of this is that now it's not a rumor anymore. Now it's not anything anymore. Now, I mean, some people can still um, consider it. Some people can look into it. But the information's out there. There's nothing there aside from. The police clearing it with their cadaver dogs and then the public clearing it through our GPR and our cadaver dogs and our digging. I don't see if there's anything more that we can do with this particular property. Yeah. And and same is kind of true for the uh, the A-frame up top there. That one um, at first was, I would say, uh, um, location number one, <laughs> like ground zero for me for a little while. I oh, yeah. really, really thought that that uh, held the answers. Um, there's a lot of conjecture about um, luminol being being seen, being used, uh, and it lit up in this closet, this downstairs closet where uh, where there was a sample taken of the wall and given to the oxygen show, who tested it, and it apparently came back positive for two different people's um, blood. So that's pretty weird. Uh, you know, we weren't in that lab. I have no idea what happened or what, but apparently they couldn't get uh, big enough profiles to tell who they, who they were. One of them couldn't have been, couldn't be ruled out as Mora. I think that was one of the main problems there was like ruled in to be like, a, like a woman of like Anglo-Saxon uh, dis descent, but, but that was about where it stopped. Um, and then we brought in cadaver dogs there too, and they sniffed in the closet and didn't even like. The only thing they were interested in that house was the dog toys. And you you run a danger not dangerous, but you run a fine line when you talk about the A-frame. There's misinformation out there that um, cadaver dogs went in there at one time, and the cadaver dogs went to this closet and went bonkers. Um, when cadaver dogs smell uh, a cadaver, when they smell human remains, they don't go bonkers. They actually do the exact opposite. They sit down. So that information was out there forever. And everyone was like, there's something in the closet. The dogs went bonkers. Well, the dogs went bonkers because they probably smelled like some food that was cooked or something. Like they did not smell uh, human remains there. Um, the blood being in there is not suggestive that there was at all enough blood to think that someone died there due to blood loss. The luminol lit up, yes, and there was blood found, yes, but those are two separate things. Luminol can light up not just with blood. It can light up with bleach. Yeah. And we did, um, we took core samples from the concrete right down in there, like deep, uh, down to like almost a foot. I inside the closet. Inside the closet where the luminol was supposedly lighting up. And concrete is incredibly porous. And after, if there was that much blood where someone had bled there, where it would have lit up, you would have seen dark staining. There, it was as clean as concrete could be. So... I think we can effectively write that off. And then the, the big mysterious uh, concrete slab that's in the A-frame front, front yard, 
yeah, it's super weird. It's weird the way it's positioned. It's weird the way it was poured. Um, it's reinforced in weird ways because usually concrete's reinforced in like a grid. This was just reinforced on the perimeter and then there was nothing in the middle. And they had these like weird uh, bored out holes that looked like a footprint of something. And um, while it's weird, it's still more suggestive that someone had maybe a hunting tower on, on that property in New Hampshire or a fire tower or maybe a swing set. The, it's, it's definitely not like... Uh, you we're going to pull that up and there's a kill room down there. It's probably someone had a hunting yeah. tower there. And they ran GPR over it too and so there was nothing. Numerous times. Yeah, there was nothing uh, going on over there. And and uh, samples were taken. And I think there was a question in the last class which I thought was interesting. Um, what do you do after you, like as a citizen, what do you do after you go into someone's house and you just start drilling into their floor and you take all this stuff out? Um, what what you have to do is just uh, always plan for the other part of the thing. Um, we had GB Geotechnics, amazing people. They they did the uh, they did the um, the the sample extraction and then they refilled it and it looks better than it did before. So if you're ever in the situation where you got to do that, make sure you have the back end of it where you're gonna leave it looking better than it did before. <laughs> and uh, I <laughs> uh, just to answer the questions there. Um, was the person who owned the house ever questioned, and why did they not let the police search the property? The second one is unanswerable, I guess, um, because we don't we don't really know why uh, he didn't let the um, the police search his property. But he was apparently very angry about it. Did not want uh, the police um, on his property. And yes, he was questioned. His um, some people very close to him were questioned as well. Uh, his Actually, the house was searched by police the day he sold it. You're His, talking about the, I'm, the I'm bottom talking about house. the bottom one, yeah. Yep. And Rick. Uh, and uh, the trailer that he owned and lived in at the time of his disappearance was pulled over and searched as soon as it was sold and towed off of his property. So I think that gives you a pretty good indication um, where, the, you know, where the police's heads were at with that particular suspect. Yeah, the, the current owners of the house said the day that they signed on the house and moved in, that night they, they got a knock on the door from the police to go in there and search. So they were just, they were sort of perched there waiting. But, you know, Lance and I talked in the class that met before you guys about how, you know, it's not necessarily something nefarious, meaning that um, a private citizen won't let law enforcement search their property, yeah. right? Especially up here in New Hampshire, you guys are a live free or die people. Um, and especially in, in rural and remote areas, right? There are a lot of folks who are just, this is just not in their, you know, mind frame to, to have law enforcement on their property. And it might not be for any other reason other than they just don't want it. That's right? true. Yeah, thank you for adding that. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a cultural thing um, with people in the White Mountain area specifically. And uh, background yeah, checks. You go there for a reason. Yeah. Um, and uh, background checks for the neighbors. Um, the bus driver, I believe, was cl was clean. I, I don't think he had any. I think there was, like, something where he, like, lied about being a police officer at one point in his past where he w and he wasn't. Which Who is kind hasn't of a lied about being a cop? <laughs> I definitely have not. Should not lie about being a cop. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but I, but I think his background is pretty clean. The um, there's been some other people. Actually, some of the people down the road definitely do. I would say that everybody who has a, a background, some sort of criminal background, has been followed up on in connection with Morris' case. I would feel very comfortable making that assumption. Well, and it seems like there's a finite pool of people, right? Because the area is yeah. not anybody well populated. Who, right? Anybody who has a criminal background has probably been interviewed about Morris' case. 
How about phone calls? So I got a few questions about phone calls, but the, this was the general kind of question from students. What is the connection, if any, between the phone card and the voicemail left on the boyfriend's phone? I never heard of anything about the phone card mm. before. Is that is that a detail that pops up a lot in the? It's super weird. Yeah, it's really hard to uh, make sense of it. Um, and stop me if I'm incorrect on any of this. All of it. It, it gets <laughs> it gets uh, kind of fuzzy sometimes. So the phone card is a card that's issued by the Red Cross. And Bill Rausch, her boyfriend at the time, was at um, Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Um, so the Red so Cross th gives those calling cards to someone like Bill. Yes. Who will then distribute them to the cadets to call their family and friends. Yeah. So it comes from like a pack of cards. Um, and the call that we're talking about is the one that he received while he was going through security at the airport on his way back to New Hampshire to help search for Mora. He gets a call as he's going through security. And it's actually kind of heartbreaking when you look through that. You can see where he's calling and receiving calls. And it's like, uh, Fred, 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 Mora's roommate, Mora's friend, Fred, Fred, Fred. And then there's a period of like maybe 15 minutes or something where it's like obvious he's going through um, security. And then it's like, uh, this call comes in, then voicemail, voicemail, Fred, Fred, Fred. So you can you can just play out what happened. He he got this voicemail, and then he's like checking it and checking it and calling Fred. Um, I don't think that he really has an answer other than I guess it's what they told me it was, which was uh, a bad connection from somebody at the Red Cross who was calling him because he had taken uh, like leave, and I guess it's the Red Cross's obligation to check up on their cadets when they take like bereavement leave or emergency leave. I think they even make travel plans for them or help yeah. them with it at times. Yeah. So I think that's what was happening when they called. He was apparently, Bill that is, was apparently at the airport with his phone off going through security when that phone call came through. So that's why there's no number, I don't think. Uh, there's not like a missed call number. It was just a voicemail that he got that seemed pretty ominous to him. But to like the what what really makes this an interesting detail is that Mora, I think probably did have one of the cards that was issued. The coincidence is that the call came from the Red Cross. So why would they need a, a calling card? Exactly. So it's did they call from their own calling card? Like yeah, it's very confusing. strange. And then it's like, well, Bill said that he heard a female sobbing. I, I mean, it's a bad connection, but I maybe he was just um, like wishfully thinking that Mora had called him and that's what he wanted to hear. Well, he was pretty sure at the time. If you, if you watch the video, I think it's on the Disappeared episode um, where he talks about that sound that he heard in that voicemail. And he's dead convinced in that clip. Um, I think in the years since that's changed, though. And the factors going into why that's changed. Who knows? You know, maybe maybe he has talked himself into you know, she didn't call me. That yeah. could be just a defense mechanism, a way to deal with what if she did call him? And, you know, what if she did? Maybe she did call him. Maybe she was in trouble and got to a phone and didn't have time to fully make that call. Yeah. Yeah, I think his his phone activity is certainly uh, different on, you know, around the time when Mora went missing. His, his average phone calls went from, like, five a day to, like, 50 um, so, but it's probably, a, you know, a guy under immense stress because his girlfriend went missing. And he was never a suspect anyway because of the distance involved. Yeah, not, not really, I don't think, yeah. Not by law enforcement.
And here we start talking about Alden Olsen, Lance, uh, your favorite topic. Well, you know I love talking about that. You know that that's my favorite thing to bring up in the early stages when we're doing anything in the public. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those things that happened with this case that was un was important and it was significant and people have questions about it because you can't put something out there that's that creepy and not have people say, well, that guy had something to do with Moore's disappearance. So that just comes with the inevitable questions. Plus, the story is really interesting. Uh, and even though I say in jest that I love doing it to make you think that I don't love doing it, I actually do love talking about this. Of course, the YouTube videos. Um, if you want to, I don't know how you guys want to handle that. It seems like the there's, we could talk for 10 hours about this in particular. Um, yeah. Lance gave kind of a good summary of, of who this guy is. And um, it, yes, he's been identified, you know his name, right? Um, yeah. And, but if you could talk about, maybe just like recap that, um, why did the police decide, or if you know, you know, why did the police decide that he wasn't a suspect? And um, anything about the other things that he posted, like the map and the mm -hmm. face and all that. So apparently he was a suspect in Maura Murray's disappearance before this video came out, which was something we hadn't known um, the whole time. And so I think he made this video as a reaction to being a suspect. And I, I guess what he believes, you know, he's, he's taunting the police, the family, the everyone out there. Um, I don't know why the police decided he wasn't a suspect, but again, apparently... Uh, that happened before this video was released. I don't, in the video that we watched together in class, I don't think that they mentioned the, like, the, the top photo, the map. The map. Yeah. Yeah. If you got, can you guys explain uh, that? Sure. The legend of Alden Olsen starts with the ski pass that he posted on YouTube, and it's just a slow zoom into the Bretton Woods ski pass, uh, cross-country ski pass, and it goes to the date, and the date was um, the day, at, or it was the ninth or something, but it was uh, to indicate, the video was titled Maura Murray, and it was to indicate that Maura Murray went to Bretton Woods with somebody else, and they, the ski pass was her ski pass, and it zooms into the date, which he later says, um, in one of his uh, posts that he had uh, photoshopped that. It does look like it's photoshopped after someone says, yeah, that's where I photoshopped it. Once you look at it, you go, oh, okay. I can, I can see where the date was changed. So that's where the legend starts. And then he posted the one where he's uh, laughing. Uh, that's the happy anniversary video. Um, Definitely one of the creepiest things you'll find on the internet. One of the creepiest things. Uh, not so, like the demeanor, his laughing, his cackling. The, the background, the lighting, it's all the music. He Academy Award for uh, set design there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he went through this series of other videos that came out that completely consumed everybody, myself included, and I hate myself because of it. <laughs> for like three months, it was like maybe twice a week, once a week, maybe once every two weeks. But you could guarantee that you'd find something from Alden, um, you know, on, on a regular basis. Yeah, he still writes blogs, I think, now, yeah. which is really weird because his writing is actually kind of really good. I was saying that before. I was like, <laughs> if you want to see, I mean, his yeah. writing's good. He, uh, his blog is uh, Passing Through Town. Yeah, he's got a few now. Hemingway. Um, but, uh, but up here where the numbers are, that's actually, um, you could actually like lay that on top of the Bretton Woods Ski Resort um, map. And so I think there's like 27 points or maybe more on that map. But one, five, 27, and eight were the corners of that map. So 
he was apparently trying to tell people about Bretton Woods in some cryptic way that probably means absolutely nothing. In this clip, we discuss the fish and game searches, uh, Todd Bogardis and uh, some other boys, my boy, and some other searches done in the recent days after Mora went missing. And I think it kind of goes back to the Occam's Razor point is I think a lot of people will say Occam's Razor leads you to believe that she's in that immediate vicinity somewhere in those woods, right like in a mile range from where her car was found. Um, There were a lot of searches done immediately in that area. Helicopters, infrared, fish and game. My my boy Todd Bogardis love him. Had um has been on like hundreds of searches, and there's only two people I think he didn't find, and Mora yeah. was one of them. Yeah. So he's a real professional dude, and um, they did a few yeah right after she went missing. So I personally don't believe she's right there in those woods. Yeah. I can see why some people think that that is the most likely outcome, though. In the words of Rick Graves, who worked with the family, he was a uh, Um, a citizen who worked with the family on the search. He had a long history of searching for uh, downed aircraft. That was his hobby. He would uh, travel around and and locate um, airplanes that had crashed. And uh, so he was familiar with, like, beating through woods. He said that the time that he spent with the family going up there every weekend, he said, we beat the hell out of those woods. And those woods are, I mean, there's some areas that are thin, but there are some areas that are incredibly dense. And they went in as deep as they could uh, to him find and Fred. nothing. Yeah, him and Fred to find nothing, like not even a, a an article of clothing, not even a, a cell phone. Like there was absolutely nothing. So yeah, and and those are just the, those guys. You know, Fred being Mara's dad and Rick being um, a volunteer who had some history of searching for missing things. And um, so, why were they not successful? Uh, I I I don't know. I mean. I guess they she, weren't. Either I guess she's they were, not there, or they weren't looking in the right place. Yeah, I think they were not I successful. I think them. I think they were successful in determining that she is not there. They need to look somewhere else. They need to expand the the search radius, and then they expand it, and she's not there. So they expand it again, and now there's. I mean, I think they're not successful because I think somebody probably took her very far away and disposed of her body uh, pretty effectively. But there are searches that happen. Um, I think twice twice a year. There's a group of um, citizen detectives uh, who call themselves Boots on the Ground who um, will meet up there and search. And I think it's like a group of like maybe like 30 people or something like that. And they are as organized as they can be. And um, so I think they hit a lot of areas and they'll hit areas of rumor and things like that. I think a lot of why they go up there is being a citizen is important to note that they, I think, Part of them wants to find something, but I think a bigger part of them wants to show everybody in the area that this is not going away. They'll they'll keep going in there and they'll keep going into the woods because the person who probably did this is probably very familiar with that area and someone knows that person because you don't just happen you don't just you don't just happen upon that area if and and happen to find this young woman and and do something bad. You know, like that person as far as all of the people that we've spoken to, experts, profilers, that person is either from that area or has a, a home there and is familiar with that area. So these boots on the ground searches go towards the pressure just to maintain on that on the on the uh, on the people up there. You know, they might yeah. know somebody who knows something. And uh, how soon after the the disappearance did the police search? I think that was uh, like a few days. I want to say those three days. And and I think there was um, some snow that actually fell on Monday, the day she went missing. And there ha- wasn't any snow after that 
before they searched. So in theory, there would they would have seen footprints running through the woods or through the snow if um, Mora had gone that way. I think uh, large predators, scavengers, you can take that into account. I'm, I don't know. I, I'm i pretty sure bears are still hibernating in February. I'm not trying to be, like, sarcastic about that, but people say, like, a hungry bear. You know, maybe if you woke it up out of hibernation, it would do something. Um, usually bears in that area, they're, they're, they're not killer bears. They're, they will probably walk away from you uh, unless they're, like, starving, coming out of hibernation. But it's still, like, the middle of winter. So you, have, you, you guys definitely have opportunistic scavengers in the woods up here, um, for sure. Um, but she, she disappears with, what, a cell phone, a backpack, a something. Wallet, like, yeah. Some stuff with her, yep. right? So to never find that on top of never finding remains is, like, that's a that, that, that totality think, of, like, nothing. You think you'd find something. Like, white snow, like, people bleed. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know a whole lot about the case, but, I mean, as far as bears go like you'd find remains if like like they don't they don't completely consume something you know what i mean right yeah you'd find remains yeah yeah you'd find bone i mean especially like that soon after i could see like if i could see if we went in there now for the first time being like oh where is everything you know because a lot happens but uh, like a weekend and now they ask for some i guess personal speculation they asked for our theories and so we gave what we feel at this point yeah this is important because we never gave any theories in the past we spent the majority of this uh you know the, the show saying that we don't have a particular theory it goes from one day to the next it's a it's a different uh scenario that that is in our heads but recently because of the people we've worked with because of the work that's been done on it uh the the interviews and all of the information gathering i think you and i have been led down a path where we can triangulate what we think the most likely outcome is. And it's not just you and I putting that together based on some blog posts and some, you know, Wikipedia uh, research. Like this is, this is a combination of three, four, five years of, of talking to people and, and going to the location and, talking to law enforcement. So I think that's a good example of what you can do if you have your own cold case you're working on, how to approach it, and then how to hone down your theory. We've talked about a lot of this. Cadaver dogs, could somebody have picked her up after the crash? Maybe a good thing to end on is if you want to, can you give us your kind of speculations on what you think happened? Sure. Your personal takes, and yeah. do they differ? Yeah, I don't. I don't think they differ too much. Um, but I, I mean, I think tree she. To tree. I think. Uh, I think she willingly got into a car after her crash. Yeah, and and she was taken somewhere, um, may, maybe just dropped off by a good Samaritan who never was familiar with the coverage and didn't know that he dropped her off and something happened to her there. But what I think is more likely is that she willingly got into a car of someone who did something bad to her. I will add to that. Uh, somebody who is from the area or knows the area really well, maybe has a vacation house or lodge, like goes there to ski or to hike in the in the summer, um, maybe to hunt. Um, yeah. But somebody who would be put there, which is a good 20 minutes off the highways. Yeah, uh, 15, 20, yeah. Yeah. In the winter, 
like I said, like in, in February, like that is a that is a pretty like direct route from point A to point B if you're going to cross. But I that time like that time of night, mon- Monday night in the winter, you 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 know why you like you're there. You you don't just happen to be there unless you're more. You don't just you know. You don't just happen to be like, oh, I'm just on Route 112 up here. Yeah, right one, one other thing the police did was I think the next Monday night at that same time, they set up a roadblock right there and um, stopped every single car that drove by, wrote their names down, where they were going and why. Um, so I, to me, I think I think the person whose car Mora got in is probably on that list. Yeah, I would agree. So are, so do you mean, do you think it's opportunistic that person is in that area okay so it's not calculated in a way of like plan it's just this was an opportunistic that's my opinion yeah yeah and uh real quick uh anecdote you know you, and it, you just always learn when you look into this case you learn just stuff about the way you think about it and the way you try to like put the pieces together um i kept thinking about mora being abducted and then taken away and maybe like like put in a closet or put in a basement or you know like tortured or something and and then we went up there for one of our searches and i and i tell tim the story all the time he's probably sick of it i hate it uh we went up there for one of our searches and we were staying at an airbnb and it was one of those like um like complexes where it was a bunch of like townhouses and i took the trash out the next morning and i drove down to where we dropped the trash off and it was a giant trash compactor that's like this size from here to there and i put the trash in and uh, there's the button that like crushes everything, and it warns you not to do that. And uh, but I looked at it and it just hit me. I was thinking if someone took Mora, killed her, cut her up, and put her in, in in this this trash compactor, no one would ever find her. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I think to to that point, I think if someone did do that and put Mora in a trash compactor, that person knew the area. If she was met with foul play, I think the person probably knows the area pretty well, probably put her in an area he knew someone wouldn't go or be traipsing through regularly, whether that's that person's property or somewhere else. I don't know. Point being, just keep your keep your brain open to, to all of the possibilities because someone did something successful. This is a... Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. It's so successful, there's been no trace of anything. Not even, not even a single credible sighting after. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. 
Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.